Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We're watching EM currencies somewhat stable here, but as Hanky would lecture uh, at Johns Hopkins, they are <clears throat> log quadratic, uh, to say the least. Let me bring him in, uh, Pim, without further ado. After public service with President Reagan and with some serious counsel to the Baltic states, Steve Hanke has done it all, teaching at the Colorado School of Mines at Berkeley and holding court, and I mean, really mean this, folks, in applied economics at Johns Hopkins, Professor Hankey owns when currencies unravel. And we welcome him now to Bloomberg Surveillance. Steve, thank you so much for taking time uh, with us today. First of all, his contagion clicked in. Well, it certainly clicked in last night. The, the half-baked currencies are becoming more baked by the day. We, we had the peso down 12% against the greenback. Turkish lira down three, Indian rupee a uh, record low against the USD, uh, Indonesian rupee a three-year low, and and the list goes on and on. And I think Tom and Pim, the the key question, or is what what's going on? And I think people are just missing the boat here. The the Fed is tight, tight, tight. And if we look at Milton Friedman and look at our cues, our quantities, we have broad money is growing at a, at a very modest pace, 4.7% year over year, measured on M4, Center for Financial Stability in New York. Uh, then if we look at Bob Mundell's P's, prices, the, the most important price in the world is the dollar-euro rate. And it's at 116 now. That's That's under my comfort zone of 120 to 140. It's tight. It's tight. The dollar's very strong. Gold is is hovering around the low end of my comfort zone, which is about $1,200 an ounce. It's about uh, 1212 now. So we, we have a very tight Fed that is strong dollar putting massive pressure on the emerging market countries uh, and their half-baked currencies. So that's that's the overall scene, and and it's not going to get any better. And it, and it looks like the the more these emerging market currencies collapse, there there is an increased probability that we'll we'll have some blowback in the in the big major markets. Professor Hankey, is there something intrinsic about the value of the U.S. dollar that investors have missed over the last six to twelve months? Uh, I don't think there's anything intrinsic. I, I think you just have to follow Bob Mundell and look at prices. And, and there are two big prices uh, uh, to look at, and that's the dollar-euro rate and gold. And then and then beyond that, you've got a lot of commodities. I mean, all the base metals are down. Part of the tightness, by the way, China is, is extremely tight now. The, the big engine for growth in the world economy, the, the last 10 to 20 years has been China and 
If you look at the trend rate of growth in the money supply since 2003, in China, the trend rate, 16% for M2, that's their broad money measure, it's only growing at 9% now. The trend rate of growth for credit to the private sector in China has been 16% also, and it's only growing at 9 now. And I think President Xi has hit the panic button. They, they've they've trying to unwind the squeeze that they've put on and, and uh, rescue things, but it, it might be too little too late. China is very tight right now. So you've got the two... The two big elephants in the room, the the, the Fed and the the central bank in China, are very tight. And and that's putting pressure on all all these half-baked currencies and and, uh, half-baked countries, quite frankly, just come unglued. These carry trades unwind very fast under these conditions. All right. So let's say that Professor Stephen Hankey gets a call from the central bank of Turkey. What does he say? Okay, here's here's what's going on in Turkey. Uh, the inflation rate now, as I measure it very accurately, is a 101% on an annual basis. The official rate's 15.85%. So you have massive negative real yields and, and a carry trade unwinding in Turkey. The crisis will continue for a long time, as it's done, by the way, in, in 94 and 2000 and now today. The, the only way to stop this nightmare in Turkey is to make the lira as good as gold, make it a clone of gold, and you do that with a currency board system. You, you fix the lira's exchange uh, and make it freely convertible yeah. at a fixed rate with gold, and you, you back the lira 100% with gold reserves. So the, the lira literally is good, as good as gold. I think that's yeah. the <clears throat> thing, thing that would stop the hemorrhaging well, there. Steve, uh, Stephen Hankey with us, folks, at the Johns Hopkins University. We're thrilled to bring him to you uh, today. Steve, there, there's the mathematics of being log linear, a straight line on a percent change y-axis, and then things get ugly and they curve, and then we go to the acclaimed world of Professor Hankey, which is hyperbolas, which folks is that moonshot, think wheelbarrows of cash in Germany in World War II. Are any of these EM currencies on the edge of Hankey hyperbola? No, no, I, I don't think so, Tom. Because to to get to those points, they're they're very rare. There there have actually only been fifty eight in world history that have gone to to that hyperbola point and hit hyperinflation, where you have fifty percent inflation rates per month. And and we have one now, of course, Venezuela. Uh, I I'm, I measure with high frequency data that inflation rate every day, and it's running sixty two thousand percent year over year, and the monthly rate is 172%. So this has been going on since November of 2016. So it hit your point, Tom, and it's the only one that's in that zone. Steve, what's the prescription here for the IMF? I mean, you're one of the giants in this racket with the late Michael Musa, the late Rudy Dorn Bush, Ken Rogoff, and the others. And the angst that's out there on Global Wall Street is the institutions, particularly the IMF, can't come to the rescue this time because of the new size of EM markets. Is that a valid worry or can Lagarde get it done? 
I, I, I don't think size is a problem. I, I think the IMF is just has wrong-headed thinking. I mean, you look, for example, even at Venezuela, we just talked about the inflation rate. You can measure hyperinflations, and you can measure them very accurately. You can't forecast the, the course or duration, Tom, of a, of a hyperinflation. And the IMF just keeps putting these inflation forecasts out for Venezuela. They, they're a joke, a complete, complete revelation of the incompetence of the IMF. They, they say inflation is going to be a million percent by the end of the year in Venezuela. And, of course, the press, like good stenographers, just repeat this nonsense. I mean, you cannot forecast hyperinflation, period. That's the end of the story. You can measure it very, very accurately. can't forecast it. So the solution on these exchange rate regimes, they're down in Argentina now. Macri called the, the, the IMF firemen in, and, and it's been a complete disaster. Uh, everything has collapsed since the IMF has come down, and Macri doesn't realize, I don't know why he called the IMF, because in 2001, remember, we had the IMF suspending the program to uh, right. Argentina. And, and this was Kohler was the managing right. director then, and, and, and the IMF basically double-crossed Argentina. And and the the complete meltdown during the crisis and the huge well, bank runs in November of two thousand and one. Professor, the IMF. We're going to run out of time. I got to cut Steve Hankey off, which is an you got to talk about the Brazilian but Real. I do, but we're going to we're going to come we're going to get Steve Hankey on as much as we can through uh, this interesting EM time again. He is at Johns Hopkins University. President Donald Trump, of course, sitting down for an exclusive Oval Office interview with Bloomberg. And the president covered a variety of topics, including the Russia probe, as well as trade policy. And when it comes to the trade talks with the European Union, the president said that the European Union's offer to scrap tariffs on U.S.-made automobiles is not enough. It's not good enough. Nope. Not good enough. Because they do a lot more auto business than we will ever do. In other words, well, first of all, it's not just tariffs. They also have barriers up to our cars. They have a, they'll take the barriers down, and they'll charge us no tax. But it's not good enough, because they will always sell more cars. Their cars, their habits, their consumer habits are to buying their cars, not to buying our cars. In response, the European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker said that the European Union will retaliate if President Trump raises tariffs on European autos. And that is a good time to bring in a gentleman who had a conversation with the president yesterday under the Earl portrait of Andrew Jackson, painted in 1835 at the Resolute Desk, our John Micklethwaite in conversation uh, with the president. John, what was the energy like in the room, away from the formal portraits and the important comments of the president? What was the backstory as you entered the Oval Office? Well, there's a lot of energy, to be fair, almost as much energy as there is with you and Pim. But it's, it's uh, Trump is, I think the main thing which comes through with the president at the moment is that he is someone who's, in a sense, sort of doubling down on Donald Trump. You know, he is not... 
other people may look at what's happening in the Oval Office and think he's got problems with the midterms, he's got problems with Mueller, he's got people resigning from his internal kind of a set of advisors. From his point of view, it's almost the opposite. He gives himself a, a grade A plus. He claims he has the best cabinet ever. He's forging ahead on everything. You know, he's just persuaded Mexico to do well and um, mm-hmm. and Canada's next. And as you said in the clip, you know, he's now moving on to the WTO and Europe. And actually, I think you know there is a like all these people, many politicians try and spin you things. I think Trump right. genuinely believes that he's he's achieving these things. Um, and for better or worse, that is the world we live in. If we were to write a Bloomberg quick take or something you helped invent, the 14-page wonder in The Economist magazine, what would, we, what would we say would be the response of Europe, the response of China, of Canada, of Mexico to all of this trade, uh, not hysteria, but just trade discourse? Do they just, just turn to the president and say no? Well, it's interesting. You talk to business people. And there is one bit of business people where most business people want him to succeed a bit. Um, so, for instance, with China, you talk to most European business people and they will say it is it would be wonderful if Donald Trump could get China to open up. Um, and you might also talk to American and European people who say it would, be, it would be very good if there were fewer trade barriers between America and Europe. But, and this is a very big but, um, at the very least, he's playing with fire with these things because most people would still say the WTO is incredibly useful and having a multilateral forum increases the amount of free trade all the way around the world, generally to the benefit of America Mm. as well. Um, And obviously, nobody wants a transatlantic trade war. And the Chinese, for the moment, are showing every sign of wanting to match Donald Trump tariff for tariff. So it, it is a slightly more nuanced picture than than either he would present or for that matter his foes and a lot of business people i think quietly under their breath were uh, condemning the trade war whilst desperately hoping that he succeeds especially with the chinese john micklethwaite i want to say leave it to an englishman to teach us about our own role in history in the united states sometimes it takes someone from the outside to have a clear perspective you've interviewed many world leaders do you view Donald Trump is different. Yes, he is entirely different. Um, I think there are many world leaders who will try to um, who will try to sort of spin things, who will try to say they're doing better. You know, Donald Trump gives more impression of being a he's a sort of train heading in every direction at once, and even when he's trying to restrain himself, he finds it very difficult. And in some cases he kind of bloviates and goes past things. In in, in other cases, he just says what he thinks. And I think that is, for better or worse, again, a key part of his appeal to people, because I think to his base, he's someone who tries to say how Mm. he sees it. And that is that is worth something to him. And I think to any extent that he tried to bottle it up, um, he's changed on that. If you want an example of one area, though, where he has become slightly more disciplined, but you can see it in his eyes that he's, he's straining at it, it's the Fed. I think he has sort of accepted after a degree of um, annoyance about the fact that he can't control the Federal Reserve. He's now accepted that that's probably a good thing, that it's good that presidents can't do that. And he was polite about Jay Powell. But you can sense even then yeah. that he wants to be able to run it. Uh, John Micklethwaite with us. John, I want to switch gears here. And of course, we're looking for a an exclusive and lengthy long read from John Micklethwaite and company Monday. So I was thinking I'm- of Alexis de Tocqueville. 
when I when uh, I spoke no, about I was the idea of, of having an Englishman talk about America. Oh, that would be very good. I, I often have to I often have to endure Tom Keane talking about Britain. So I think it's only oh no no, no we're going to Britain right now, and I know we've got a long read feature coming out, five thousand words on Monday on uh, Theresa May dancing her way across Africa. But except for that, John, we need a Britain update. Would you explain to me what the incentive is for anybody in Europe? to put up with your Brexit debate. What's what's their incentive even to become engaged in this domestic foolishness of your United Kingdom? Well, you've actually, you're actually asking the key question, um, because what is happening at the moment is the Europeans have just let it be. There's, there's a slight sign over the past kind of 10 days that the Europeans have moved a bit. Macron's begun to say, look, it's a bit silly if Britain just crashes out of this thing. Um, it's already pretty clear that most of the burden of Brexit will be carried by Britain. But it isn't, it's also not entirely in Europe's interest. You know, France is Britain's neighbour. A lot of its trade comes through France. It's not in France's interest to have a complete sort of disaster on its, on its doorstep. So from business people, from politicians a bit, there's at least slightly more willingness to come in. But you are basically right that what has happened mm. is that from the British point of view, every day is dominated by Brexit headlines and what it means and this it means. You will visit the people who run France or Germany or Italy. Yeah. And it's something they think about once every two months because they've been very happy leaving this with Michel Barnier, who is the European Commission's. You know, negotiator. Pim, Micklethwaite's like a digital maven. I'm watching Theresa May do her second dance off the independent video. Why don't we have that video at Bloomberg? I mean, you know, <laughs> thanks to the independent for giving me background briefing for, for it, is, it is It is an amazing video. I don't think even I, – I, I tried to work out that maybe some people may feel sympathy for Theresa May. She dances um, almost <laughs> worse than I do. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> uh, John, does the – have we lost the, the perspective that the balance of power in Europe has changed and will change because of the exit from the European Union? Yes. I think what is happening is that there are two... If We've had a somewhat Anglo-centric conversation, so I don't think there's any harm in saying this, is I think from an Anglo-centric point of view, you know, people used to talk a bit vaguely about an Anglosphere where obviously America is the predominant partner and Britain plays a secondary role but together they're probably greater than the sum of their parts that yeah. it's always helped America having somebody else who's willing to stick up for roughly the same things but firstly the agenda which they're both pushing things like generally free trade opening up things well that is no longer the priority of, um, of Donald Trump certainly secondly you've got America withdrawing from some areas of the world not wanting to do things and thirdly, you've got Britain coming out of its main you know, forum to influence people, which was the European Union. And so I think from the point of view of that sort of Anglo message, which is, you know, I, I don't want to build that too big. I think there has been a retreat. And it matters enormously that uh, if you talk to American politicians, the most valuable thing about Britain was that it right. was a kind of friendly to American voice inside the EU. We'll have to leave it there. John Mickelthwaite, thank you so much, and congratulations on uh, the many themes of your conversation with the President of the United States.
Right now, we speak with CBS's Margaret Brennan, who has a spirited face the nation uh, Sunday morning. And, of course, you'll hear it on uh, Bloomberg Radio Sunday at 2 p.m. I mean, that speaks to the uh, the, the noise of this August, uh, Margaret, in Washington to see Christopher Friedland so abruptly exit to try to get this discussion done. It's not a boring August, is it? No, I don't think there is such a thing as a boring August with the Trump administration. Um, And certainly this push to get a deal by today, by Friday, uh, so that they can move forward with presenting to Congress some kind of proposal to overhaul NAFTA is something that many, like the president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, are really pushing for. The hope is that it would lift some of the political pressure, both from Mexico ahead of their inauguration of their new president and ahead of those upcoming elections in Canada in 2019. It's not clear if they can win that gamble. There's so many themes to talk about, Margaret, including what we're going to see in an hour and 55 minutes on Capitol Hill with the senator from Arizona. But to stay on trade, you have an experience of these negotiations, and I would suggest it's an experience of complexity. Does this administration do complexity? Uh, They do in the sense that there is a a number of people within the administration with varying different views as to how all of this should end up. But it seems like fundamentally on this issue of NAFTA, um, it it comes back to some of the very basics that have always stuck uh, the relationship, including, you know, coming to some kind of compromise with Canada over how their dairy farmers policies are are protected um, up there, and uh, as well as this dispute mechanism uh, that continues to be a sticking point. Within the administration, it does appear that the president has made a push with the urging of his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, to get the U.S. trade representative to make some moves to make compromise possible on NAFTA. Uh, The question, of course, is will the Canadians get on board with what Mexico and the U.S. have agreed to at this point? Margaret, President Donald Trump has definitely boasted of the performance of not only the U.S. stock market, but the U.S. economy. Do you get the sense from talking to your sources in Washington that the political establishment also feels that level of enthusiasm for American economic power vis-a-vis these trade negotiations? They have enthusiasm about the economic power, but they've got great anxiety that all of that could start being damaged or dissipate, particularly towards the end of September, as some of those retaliatory tariffs start to bite in the heartland. Um, And there's really no, you know, even though you see these glimmers of hope with, say, Europe or Canada and Mexico on potential trade negotiations or even deals, the Chinese are such a different group of negotiators. And really, I'm not hearing any uh, momentum on that front. And that is the trade dispute that really could bite. And so there is anxiety around that. There's this urge among Republicans to say, get something done on trade where we can stand behind you, uh, you know, uh, and and stand with you against China. But so far, um, there's very little hope. And you heard that from the president just this week, blaming China for uh, what he says is diplomacy faltering with North Korea. Margaret, tell us about Face the Nation Sunday morning. We'll be tracking and continuing to report on these services here in Washington for Senator John McCain. And we will be speaking to former Secretary of State and former Senator John Kerry this Mm. Sunday, who's got a brand new book out. 
he spent a lot of time with John McCain, even though the two of them were on opposite sides of the aisle and had very different perspectives. You know, John Kerry rocketed to fame as a war protester, John McCain, a prisoner of that war. And the two found common cause in the 90s to say, let's make peace. Let's help find uh, those missing in action and use that toehold to establish diplomatic relations between the U.S. and Vietnam. It's really an extraordinary story. And uh, John Kerry tells us about that. Margaret Brennan, thank you so much. Of course, you can see Face the Nation on CBS. Do that Sunday uh, morning. You can listen to Face the Nation. Bloomberg Radio Sunday, 2 p.m. in New York, Washington. In DC. And now Bloomberg 1061 Boston Newburyport Face the Nation this Sunday at 2 on Bloomberg Radio. We digress. And if you go to the Point Sky website, Brian Kelly's invention, you will find an wonderfully eclectic set of articles. Mike Arnott is out moments ago with an article on how they figure out what the flight path will be for you when you go over oceans, just as that is one idea of the richness of this. Joining us here on a Labor Day weekend as we all travel, Julian Keel, who is with uh, the Points uh, Guy website. Julian, just congratulations on what your website does in terms of eclectic travel. But I've got one arch question. When does this all end? There have been articles that J.P. Morgan is overwhelmed by the success of their Sapphire program. I'm sure there's others like J.P. Morgan because we're all doing this. We're all reading you guys. We're all trying to be as smart about the use of the miles. Do you guys feel like this is something where at some point the banks are just going to say no? <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a good question because it, tra- uh, collecting travel rewards, especially through credit cards, is a bigger business than ever, and consumers are more educated than ever. Uh, just last quarter, uh, Chase actually had over $300 million in unanticipated redemptions wow. by customers who were using their points wiser than they otherwise expected. So we, obviously it's partly part of the economic cycle in general. Right now we're at the height of it and credit card companies are doing great overall. Uh, whether that will change when things turn down, it is a possibility. But on the other hand, consumers are just into travel. They're into loyalty points. Uh, we certainly don't see the interest decreasing anytime soon. Julian, how many miles a year do you fly? <laughs> I personally fly over 100,000 miles a year, uh, and that's actually a, a, a small compared to some of my uh, colleagues at the Points Guy. Some of them fly over 200,000 miles a year, and I have to tell you, it is a lot of time on a plane, but uh, a lot of times that we are flying up front, if you will, because we're reviewing business class and first class cabins. Oh, I wouldn't and- know that feeling. <laughs> it is a different experience. It's a, when you're flying up front, the the upfront cabins, while economy in the back has been worsened and the si- seat sizes are smaller than ever, upfront the story is very different. Where airlines are now competing for customers based on luxury and comfort. So flying in business or first, especially internationally, is a whole different experience than it was even five years ago. All right. Well, t- help Tom uh, get all the business class that he deserves. What kind of card should he be using, and does he have to use more than one card? 
ideally he should be using more than one card and that's because to maximize your frequent flyer points and miles you want to be using a card that earns bonus points on specific categories and then pick that the right card out of your wallet uh, depending on where you are so if you've got say yeah but none of the cards actually pay for tuition <laughs> for tuition, it's a little trickier. Uh, we do actually have a few stories on the points on how to maximize points when you're paying for tuition. So, Tom, you know, we, you can check those out. But uh, when you're at a restaurant, you want to make sure you use a card that's getting bonus points in restaurants. On the yeah. other hand, if you're shopping groceries, you want to use the groceries card. Let's get back to one of the news items of the moment, which is everybody wants to do longer flights, which to me screams top of the market. And whether it's mm -hmm. Sydney to New York or, you know, you can name the long distance flight. Do the airlines have the responsibility to not overexpand now like they've done in every other cycle before? It, that is the question, because every other cycle, as you said, the airlines have gone too far, too many flights, too many seats, and it ends up being an oversupply and not enough yeah. demand. Uh, Qantas is uh, talking about this uh, new, new possible flight from Sydney to London, which would be over 10,000 miles, the longest nonstop in the world if it happened. Now, the aircraft currently don't exist to do that distance <laughs> with any detail. regularity. Right, yeah, small detail. But Airbus and Boeing are both working on versions of their aircraft that could do it. it, it Qantas in particular has has this uh, idea that they're going to uh, do these ultra-long haul routes uh, in an effort to uh, win business. They think they have the business model for it. It is. It's a lot of resources into these very long haul flights, and whether it works is yet to be uh, seen. I noticed Pim American. Yeah. I think just took out Chicago, Shanghai. You know, they got yeah. three or they four did. choices. Yes, but they took one of them yeah. out. Julian, low cost yeah. carriers like Norwegian. Wow. Tell us about Wow's an airline. W O W is an right. airline. I yeah. yeah. Okay. Tell us about yeah. low cost carriers because I've had several people tell me. It works, and it works really well. You know, if you, from a passenger perspective, as long as you know what you are getting into, that when you book a ticket on a low-cost carrier, the ticket price is not necessarily the end of the story. It may be a very low price on the actual airfare, but you've got to be aware that you may get charged extra, not just for bags, but may, but certainly for meals, even on an international flight. Yeah, but okay, but we're talking like 300 bucks to fly yeah. from continental Europe to L.A. It, it is amazing, and it's, it's low th the airfares right now have, are lower than they ever have been, especially to Europe. Uh, even tr uh, Transcon from New York to L.A., uh, when JetBlue came in with mint, their mint product, they drove the prices down even of the first-class experience. So it is a great time from a consumer standpoint to fly. It, there is uh, there are clouds on the horizon with the price of oil being uh, higher now than it's been over the last few years. That's going to put a pinch on some of these uh, revenues. Uh, sorry, some of these expenses yeah. for the airlines. I want to we'll see what happens. There. I want to circle back uh, finally here, uh, Julian, to the success that Chase has had. Do the other banks want to be? like Chase, or are they learning from Chase that they really don't want to go there because of the huge expense of redemptions? You know, it's 
it's a little bit of a mixed bag because Chase, of course, with its Chase Sapphire Reserve product that was extraordinarily popular uh, when it first came out, and, and they've had really good retentions on that card, was a direct competitor to American Express, who had their own platinum card, which was a high-tier travel benefits card. So, and, and as a result, American Express has felt the need to improve their platinum card. So there certainly is competition there. On the other hand... Yeah, but where's Wells as, Fargo as an example? Yeah, Wells Fargo just came out with a new <clears throat> Propel Amex card, but it's aimed at a very different segment of the market. It's a no-annual-fee card. So the, the credit card issuers have had to improve their products to compete, but they're aiming for oh. different segments of the market. Uh, this has been wonderful. Julian Kill, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with Brian Kelly uh, over at the Points Guy uh, website. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.